Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. This episode contains scenes which are not suitable for children and which some listeners may find distressing. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. I just accepted that. I was probably just going to die there. I didn't want to kill me. I, I, I didn't have any plans to run. I didn't think because I was too afraid. I didn't know what I was going to do. Like I, I didn't, I was just... I was normal. I'd, I'd given up mentally and physically and emotionally. I'd had enough. I was broken. They'd taken everything from me. He, uh, he, he had had it all. He literally he'd had everything from me. There's nothing Brian Kenny hasn't taken from me. He's had it all. So I was just, I'd just given up. I just accepted the fact that I wasn't in control. And my family, like Jonathan O'Reilly's family. Next week, probably. Because I knew deep down I'd never be allowed to keep going on with that secret. I knew that was too much. So I just thought I was going to die and end up in the field. That's where he said he's going to put me. And he brought me to the field the days after. I'm standing in the middle of the field and he's shooting over my head. And he's shooting to the left of me, he's shooting to the right of me. And I'm standing there like literally, like literally with my arms by my sides. And he's telling me, see how easy it is. And he doesn't give a fuck. He's just reloading the gun constantly. And pointing it at my face. Then going up like that and banging in the air. And then putting the gun in my mouth. Like I, he could be putting, I could feel it at the back of my throat. Like, like single barrel shotgun. He put a handgun in my mouth in the shed. Do you know what it's like? It's fucking horrible. Cut the top of your mouth off when he shoves it in your mouth. You can taste it like it's the metal steel. You have to smell it. And after I'm sticking the gun in your mouth, after being shot, you can taste the gunpowder and all in the back of your throat. It's disgusting, like. And he didn't give a fuck, he was just an animal. Everything got really crazy, like. He was checking the walk phone all the time, making sure I wasn't ringing anybody, checking the messages. He was ringing the junkies up, making sure that I was actually just going to meet them and coming back. That's when the timing started, really got really bad. Like, he would go in the car and then he'd come back and say, look, how, how I done it? I done it like in four minutes and 15 seconds or whatever, or four minutes and 17 seconds. This should only take you that amount of time to get there and back. All you're doing is pulling up in the car, handing it over, taking the money straight back. I think I went one day and got petrol because there's no petrol in the car and he killed me when I came back. Everything just got 
time and then the control was just unreal. Like, like I had to ask her to go to the toilet. I had to ask her to use the bath. I had to ask her to have something to eat. Like, where stuff just got really extreme. It was like that before, but it just got... The control just got worse, like. It was a lot more threats with the family and it was a lot more... Where he would say that before, but it wasn't as bad. It was just more... He had me before. And once and more, that's when it was just... It was tormenting. It was constantly tormenting me with my family and threatening me and beating me and haunting me. And he was making sure that he kept my mouth shut. This is The Witness. In his own words. Episode 7. The Lips. He didn't want me talking to anybody. It was kind of like he wanted me running the business, but then he didn't want me running the business because he'd be afraid I was going to speak to somebody. Does that make sense? So on one hand, he's like saying, I can't let him out of the house because he's going to tell somebody. But the other hand, he's saying, I need him to run the business because I can't run it. Just to understand, so on one hand, he needed me in the house because he could control it, what I was doing. But on the other hand, he needed money coming. He needed the business to be still going. And he couldn't do it because he was strung out. So he needed me to do what he couldn't do. But he couldn't have both. And that's what he was trying to juggle. He was trying to control every aspect of my life. He's obviously worried that you're going to crack. Yeah. For, for a while, I just accepted it. I just thought, there's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't help him now he was dead. And so I just thought about his family, thought about my own. Yeah, I just accepted what was happening. Yeah, I just thought there's no way you... Hmm. And can you remember a point which you started to feel that you could that the that you could have the strength to to make a move and, and get out of there? Tell what tell we're gonna kill somebody else. It was just something that I couldn't. I, I that I didn't sign up for any of it, but I definitely didn't sign up for that. I already hid the gun to the murder of a Jonathan. And I couldn't live without my conscience. That was killing me. I already felt like I was involved by doing that. Like I was in the ditch. They were around the other side, around the other side in the car, and they had petrol in a bottle, in a milk bottle, an old milk bottle that had been in the shed for years. And um, they wanted me to blow the car up. When he came out of the house, um, they were going to run up and plug on there. And I was in the ditch and I was like, no, my mother's seen two guard cars. I rang, rang them, saying two guard cars are after going up and down there twice. And they were like, like I was like, yeah, they're driving up and, up and down his road. There was no guard cars, but I was, only, I was just thinking of any reason, just to say, just... I didn't think they were going to stop. I thought they were going to... Usually what Brian would do, he wouldn't give in if we were doing something. If we were doing a robbery and a security man turned up, he would just fuck off for a few hours and we'd go back and get it again. It could kill him if he didn't get... If we went there on a, like, a robbery and he didn't get what he wanted, like, it'd be the worst night ever. The whole family's getting broken up. The whole house is getting killed. Everything's going to... Everyone's going to suffer if he didn't get what he wanted. Like. And then they said, we'll, we'll leave it for tonight and we'll come back. That was it then, that's when I thought I needed to get out here. 
just couldn't get it out of my head that they killed him. I couldn't get it out of my head. People keep saying, well, 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 you didn't know him. It's not the point whether I knew him or not. Why should that matter? They're taking a human's life, like. They kill, like they kill somebody, someone's son, someone's father, someone's brother, someone's friend, like. I just couldn't live with what they'd done to Jonathan, and then I couldn't, li- I couldn't live with the thought of me being involved in killing somebody else. Just wasn't willing to do it. So I thought, and I'll lie to get caught and get killed. At least I'll try. At least, like, in my head, at least I thought, well, at least I'm going to try and get out here. At least I'm going to try and do the right thing. What I do or not, I didn't know whether I was going to be able to get out. And that's when I made the plan. And everywhere was locked, and there was the walls and electric fences, and everything was just locked and locked. And he, bar- he barricaded my car in and took the keys to the bikes. And, and the only thing I could think of was I always had the smack phone with me and the, the coke phone, so I always had a phone. But I couldn't ring the guards. I couldn't go to the guards because he always said he had friends in the guards. That's what he'd say. I needed to get out of the house, but I just didn't know how I was going to get out of it. I knew I was going to get electrocuted getting over that gate, but I didn't give a fuck about getting electrocuted. I'd been through wars, like, I didn't care about that. And I knew once I got outside, all the lights were going to come on, all the, all the spotlights. So Mondo's room was at the front, so that was my excuse to be at the front of the house. So I was allowed to go to the front of the house because I'd have to go and get him for school. I'd have to do certain things or get him ready or whatever. So I'd go and say, get Mondo and say, come on, I'll do your homework with you and bring him back to the kitchen. Or, come on, do, have your dinner, bring him back to the kitchen. So I always had an excuse to go back and forward to the front of the house. I left the inside door on the latch and I went to the front door and it was locked with a key and I couldn't find the key. So what I was doing while Mondo was having his dinner, I was doing the homework, I closed the door, I was going through the drawers and looking and I found the key, the key to the, to the main door. I went to the main door and I had kind of had the lock up here and I turned the lock. Both doors I left closed but just with the latch off them. So they looked like they were locked but they weren't locked. And then for about two days then, I, it was like a test run. Every time I came down the twisty stairs in my bedroom, they creaked. So what I was doing was I was holding onto the side of the walls and sliding down them. Because if you heard the creaky jumping away of bed, and you have to remember, he's walking around the house every day with a pump-action shotgun full of bullets. This is what I was living with, like. He'd blow your head off, like. So I kind of done a test run for like a day or two. Seeing could I get to the front door, seeing could I open them. That was grand. For the two days, three days, I can't remember exactly how many days I walked. So I knew he hadn't realised the doors had been unlocked. I knew there was only one person that could do it, that would have the bottle. Unfortunately, that was my sister. But, uh, yeah, I knew if anyone had the balls to do it, it would be her to come and get me. And she didn't, she didn't let you down? No, definitely not. Straight, definitely not. And, I don't know, she was always, Louise always kind of, all her life she fought for me. I remember like her confirmation, she had a black eye. Some fella in Ballymore had hit me with a gat and she went down to fight him. And she had a black eye in her confirmation. My man had to put all the makeup on her face. Literally had a big shine on her shirt the day before her confirmation. She was fighting for me all her life, still is to this day. Flying up in the bedroom, I rang my sister. 
says, you need to come and get me. I said, I need you to reverse to the drive. Turn your lights off and ring and hang up once. Felt like forever. And she rang and hung up. And that was it. The stairs were spiral stairwells and they were wood. Made out of wood and they were red. And they creaked and they creaked so much. Every time I stepped on the stairs, he'd open the door. Every time. And I literally didn't even walk down the stairs. I kind of held onto the wall, onto the railings. And I kind of... It's quite, I kind of floated down the stairs. I was trying not to let my feet touch. I was kind of touching the sides of the wall because that's how he used to always wake up. He'd know I was coming down the stairs, but he'd hear the cracks. And then I got past the bedroom door. All I could see was him lying there. She was on the far side. I'll never forget it. She was turned over. And then he was there. He was lying and the needle was hanging out of his arm. And the, the belt was around it. And then the shotgun was just lying on the floor. And I remember someone asking me once, would you not have picked up and shot him? And killed him when he was asleep. And I'd be lying if I think if I said the thought didn't go through my head. But then I, I just, I just not, I'm just not that, I'm just not that type of person. I'm just not built like that. I kind of thought I'm not going to get out of here. I did kind of look at him and think, look, what can he do now? When I seen the gun on the floor. Then I thought, that's just not, then I just, it was just like a thing, it did go through my head. I'd be lying if I said it didn't. When I walked past and I seen it, I kind of just looked at it and then I looked down on the floor and then I, then I was like, no, I'm just, I, I did think of killing him, like. And then I got to the door. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I opened it, pulled the four doors, two doors I had to get through. And all I hear is, Joey, where are you going? And my heart sank. I thought it was him. And I looked around and it was Mondo standing behind me in his pyjamas. He's like, where are you going? I was like, no, I'm just going now. Everything's going to be all right. It's back in a few minutes. Picked him up. And I brought him into his bedroom. Put him in the bed. Shoot a blank on. So I'm just shushed out and stay there. And I got out the front door. Obviously, Louise had rang. She was outside waiting. So this place was like a fucking prison. Like, there was dogs on chains. So if a car pulled up, the dogs would bark. All the lights come on. The cameras are there. Like, so as soon as I went out, I had to run, get over them gates, get over the electric fence. And plus the fucking dogs. I was terrified from them. Even though they were our own dogs, I was afraid of them. I don't know how many times they tried to bite me. And I just jumped, ran, jumped over the fence. Got into the car. I just said, drive. And she just put the foot down. And we didn't even know where we were going, to be honest with you. We hadn't got clear what I was doing. And I just thought, I remember our face. I just said that after killing someone, we said after killing him. She was just like, what do you mean? And I was like, you know, they killed him, the fellow outside the prison. And she was like, what you, I was like, they're going to kill me. And she was like, she was like, no, we'll get to my, my father. I'll help us. Yeah, we rang me ma. 
and she was in the Royal Oak and Fingla village. I just felt they killed him. She just couldn't believe it. But she was just adamant from the get-go. She just found the one force men at all. She was adamant he wasn't going to kill me, but she was adamant I was going to do the right thing. Straight away she said it to me. She said, I promise you I'll stay by I'll stand, I'll stand by you. You're gonna do the right thing. He's not gonna kill you and he's not gonna he's not gonna kill anybody else again. And you're gonna make sure he doesn't. I remember I just telling me. And then we were just driving around for ages because we didn't know what to do. She just told me this, but she was telling me this on one hand, and then the other hand she was kinda of thinking, What the fuck, where where the fuck do we go? Like And then we're getting a phone call saying he's at Bally he's at Bally Moon. So he, someone rang to say he was at Bally Moon. He was, cause he was at Bally Moon. He had, a, he had a petrol can in his hand or something. Whatever happened, he was ran away from the garden. He didn't go. He didn't get. In, he didn't get to the house. Ma just out nowhere says, I, "I know this guard. I know this guard from Bally Moon that used to come and see us when when he was my kids and when Dad used to hit her." And Ma said he was always good to her. Um. When he get, he was the man that got barren orders against me dad and he would arrest me dad and take me dad away for hitting her and Matthew he was always kind like and if he was there we're gonna be alright and she rang and I don't know whether he was on or he was just finished or whatever and she'd rang and left a message for him to, to ring her back. She said it was Mary O'Callaghan and it was it was really important. I think she did say to get him to she said it was about a murder, so we contact her, so he would contact. Then we just waited, and then my phone rang, and it was Stephen Daly, the guard from Valley One. He rang me, Ma, to say to bring me to the police station. My Ma told him over the phone, and she said she'd bring me once he promised that they didn't take us away from each other. And he promised that they'd let me see half day. He knew me straight away when we went in, Stephen Daly. He says, you still look like the little guy when I used to go to the flat and see you. And he said he knew what to do and he knew the right person in the ring that I was looking after. And the guy that was looking after was obviously the guy that had looked after the Veronica Kagirin motor to put John Gilligan and that. He was meant to be a good guy, like a decent girl, a decent copper. And he rang him. He said he was coming. And then Stephen said... Because the place was getting people, the big place was getting full. Everyone with guards and everyone could see there was something going on. And obviously, word was getting around the police station. And people were kind of coming to look like different guards and people, detectives, and not. It was like everyone was coming to look at you, like stare, like, oh, what's going on? So he, he said, I'm going to put you in the cell over here, but I'm going to leave the door open and your man's going to go with you. So like, we're not locking you up, we're not. No, nobody can look and see it. So he put me in my mind the cell. I think a, I think a guard kind of stood at the door just to make sure no one opened the door or whatever. But with Biff Strange being in a cell with my ma, and I was terrified and I'm sitting in a cell. And the, the, the door was closed, but we weren't locked in. But it was a bit of a weird situation. I'm sitting there shaking, like sweating, broken, battered, bruised. And with my ma wrapped around me and I'm bleeding stone thing in the, in the cell, like, fucking, you see, you the water dripping. And we're just sitting there in the cell, shaking, like, just me and my ma. And I just remember my ma holding me, hugging me. She was crying. 
And we didn't know what was happening, we didn't know what was going to do. We just knew nothing was ever going to be the same again. And then this man walked in, called Toddy, Toddy O'Loughlin. He just walked in and he kind of looked around and he said to why are they in the cell? Real, from the beginning, he was very for me. He was very, he, I don't know where that, why, he was just very kind to me and my ma. But straight away, he was kind of like, get, get him, get him out of there, they shouldn't be in there. And then yeah, your mum was like, no, it's just because everyone was looking, we just wanted to get him out of the way. But you could hear him kind of giving them a bollock and like, they should have put them in a room or something, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, give a cup of tea or something, I don't know. But he wasn't impressed, like, Toddy was the one that went and got John Gilligan for Veronica Gurdon. He's the one that went to England and took him back in the plane and got him convicted. I told him, I said, they killed Jonathan O'Reilly outside the prison. He says, who did? I said, Brian, Kenny and Thomas Henshaw. And uh, he, he says, I know them. He said, but why is Kenny involved? He couldn't fathom because of the connection. He, he could understand Henshaw, because he knew Henshaw, he knew Richie McCormick, he knew Robbie O'Hanlon. But he, he, they, they knew Kenny from Fingers, not from... I said, no, he's buying the heroin from him. Brian's the one that shot him. And he said to me, none of them will get you, and I promise you that. And then he just said, you need to... You need to tell me everything. And he said, you need to make a statement, because I can't get a, I can't get a warrant without a statement. And I need to ring a judge. They had to go ring a judge to wake a judge up out of his sleep. And they need to tell a judge this have a statement so he could give a warning. This was like, at this stage, it was like two or three in the morning. And, uh, yeah, that's when I, uh, what did they say? That's when I earned my nickname, Joey the Lips. That's when I became a rap, as they said. And I, uh, broke the code or the rules. That's what they say, I, I call it doing the right thing. And that's when I've done the right thing, yeah. I remember trying to rush it because I was afraid he was coming for my family. And I knew he didn't know where the gun was, but I knew he'd be looking for it. And that's what I kept thinking, he's gone. Because he was texting as we were doing the statement. He thought he was reading the messages. He was saying in the messages, I want me gun. I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to kill you, man. He was saying all this. So the phone kept bleeping and bleeping and bleeping. And Toddy just kept looking at the messages and kept saying, don't let him keep writing them. And he kept ringing. I think there was over 100 missed calls. They needed me to make the statement and they needed me to give them the gun. I knew once I signed, once they said you need to sign it, and I think I had to sign it a few times. I think I had X's and there was one or two pages I had to sign it. And then there was a bit, if there was a mistake, I had to initial it. But I just remember once I read Joseph O'Callaghan, I knew that was it. I knew, yeah, that was it. That was, I knew I was a dead man walking there. I kind of thought then once I signed it, I kind of thought, fuck it. It's, it's too late now. I'm, I kind of wanted to just, I wanted to get him. I kind of, I don't know whether it was anger or more, I was kind of like, just get them now. And I'll just do whatever I have to do after that. 
How long is it then until they get the warrant and and you go? About well, about three hours. I, they couldn't. I couldn't understand why they were so slow. I'll, I'll never forget that. I was so impatient because I understood how he, Kenny walked. I thought I don't know whether they believed me. A lot of people were doubting me, I think, and I couldn't understand why they weren't acting quick enough. I was saying, like, he's in the house, you have to go in the house. I have to go in for the motor. I know where the bike is. I know where the letters are. I know where the cars are. I know where everything is. So why can't you go and arrest them? And they had to do a bike. Everything had to be done by the book. So it's not like you see in the movies. It's not like you see... I don't know, on Kenny's favourite programme, The Sopranos, and the police just turn up and grab you. Everything was just very slow. Because I think they just had to follow protocol. I couldn't understand because I knew I had everything. So to me, I was just like, just, come on, let's get in the car. Like, I can, we can, this will be... And I knew Kenny, and I knew the way he taught, and I thought, oh, he's up in that field, he's going to tear. He's going to be digging the fields up, he's going to find the gun, it's going to be too late. If he'd have found that gun, I was fucked. If he'd have got to the gun before me, like if Kenny had found the murder weapon before me, I was dead. But what would the guards had? Nothing. I could have brought them up to the field, the gun was gone. They would have let me go. And I was a dead man walking. Dead man. Like he would have killed me. And that's what I was worried about. And I was sort of saying that to them. I was saying, we need to get to the gun before he gets to the gun. They were like, well, he doesn't know where the other is. Yeah, but there's only three fields. And he knows the fields like I know the fields. But he wasn't thinking that logically about go get the gun. No, and I just think he thought he was that cocky and confident, and he was that convinced that I was. He had me under control. He really, he was really convinced that I was going to come back. There's no way on earth he thought I was in the police station. Toddy is on the phone and he's ringing people, getting people out of bed, and he said I could actually hear him saying hello. <laughs> people like hey, wake up, out of bed, Ballymun now. I just kept on the phones and they kept they were asking me about the house. So I said I said well, you need to get first of all you need to go over the gate, then you need to get past the dogs, past the fence, past the gate, past the dogs. I said the lights are going to come on and the cameras are there, so he's going to see any of the pump action shotgun. And they were looking at me like I was crazy. I was like, I'm telling you, when you get over that gate, he's going to come out with a pump action shotgun. And we walked out the back, and there must have been about like 20 men. There were vans, there was cars, there was all sorts of army, like armed stuff and guns. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, and they put me and my man to the back of Toddy's car. And then it was like a convoy. Everyone went to Mitchell Sound College, we all left Ballymore. And they were all on walkie-talkies, talked to each other in the cars. We went up. Then we parked up the road on the left. And the guards all jumped over the gate. They had their guns out and their guard, their vests on. And you can just hear them all screaming, guard, guard, drop the gun, drop the gun. And you can even see Toddy's face. I was like, I told you he had a gun. And they got him to eventually drop the weapon and he opened the back door. They got him on the ground and handcuffed him. Brought him out. And then they brought her out. She was like a fucking banshee. She was pregnant, screaming like a bleeding lunatic, roaring up and down the street and all. And they arrested her. And then, then it was mad. Within five minutes, Brian's dad pulled up in the car. They got the young fella. They gave the young fella to Brian's dad. Then... The next minute the cars were coming past and they told me I mean mad to put her head down. And you could see Brian going in the fourth car. 
and then she was gone in the second car behind them. And I didn't know where they were going then. And I think they let me ma go then. They said, took me, one of them took me ma back to Ballymun and I would have to bring them around the fields. Went in the back side, went in to the kitchen where Kenny was. Gun was on the floor. They told me to stand against the press and start taking pictures. Yeah, just start taking pictures of me. So they told me to stand beside the gun, took pictures. There was ammunition or something, I don't know what else was on the counter. To take pictures. Brought me into the house, into the hall, off to my bedroom. And we went up to the room and there was my bed, there was the table, the scales, the chairs. And there was no, no drugs around there, there was just the scales, the bags and whatever he would hit. Don't know where he'd put whatever was there, he'd put away. Um, that's when the guard said, uh, where's your stuff? I said, uh, this is my stuff. He was like, no, like, where's your things, like, where's your clothes and stuff? I said, yeah, whatever I have is here, like. I never thought of it, I never really thought of it was much of a big thing. Until later on in life, until someone said it to me afterwards, and one of the one of the psychologists said to me, "Do you not think that was a sad moment?" And to me, I was just used to it. That that's that's what I had. Came back down the stairs, showed him the spare room where Thomas would stay. That was just nothing in that room. It was just literally a room, just a small room. I think there was a little wardrobe and a chest of drawers. Went into their room and Kenny's room and there was just needles, heroin, money, phones, tinfoil, blood, ropes, belts, jewellery, cocaine on tray, like on CD covers, tinfoil, heroin on it, bundles of cash. It was just, it was like... Did you ever see Whitney Houston at home? Bobby Brown were in the room smoking the crack. Google that picture, that's what it was like. That's literally what it was like. Go back through the house then and we went into the shed. There was just cars, tools, bikes. There was three or four cars and like there was bikes, there was tools, there was burning gear that we do for when they're doing the robberies. There was just anything you think, I ain't got to do with crying, like Robin, there was just there, crowbars, cores. Then there was the man cave down the back. It was all locks and doors and chains and all, it's just not something that, not something that I like to remember. Spent enough time in it, so. You're showing the guards all of this? Yeah. And what are they saying about that? They just, I don't think they, I don't think they understood how big of an operation it was. You could see there was, there was, a big, there was more of a bigger catch than they thought they were getting. This was before we even got to the gun, like. This was before I'd even handed them the motor weapon. They were just taking the back of the hall. It was just a mad... I don't... They couldn't understand why I lived there, how I lived there, and then they couldn't understand. It was just... They were, they were, they were trying to get a gra- grasp of the whole operation, what was going on here, like. So they could see straight away the operation was a lot more bigger and they... It wasn't like we were just selling it to... Five or six people, like we were selling it to every anyone and everyone that wanted it was getting it. And yeah, they were just taking it all in. I think they were just more in shock than that. Obviously, the gun was the main thing. Everyone wanted the gun. 
more guards would come from fingers and they had like these like shovels and all stuff to hit the trees with and all. Then up to search. And I was like, you don't need any of that stuff because I know where everything is. Like, So on the way up to the field, they were like, ah, he's full of shit. Like, he's now going up here. Like, he has us running around like fucking idiots, like, making me out to be a lawyer. Like, and I was kind of looking at them and thinking, again, we're going to be talking about man. I know what circle I put here. We went into the field, turned right. Picture now, walked, walked up for 20 or 30 steps. And I just said, there it is, there. And they couldn't see it, nobody could see it. Only me, I said, yeah, there it is. And then they were like, oh, we can't see it, show us. And then we walked up, and I remember putting my hand in to grab the gun. And then everyone started shouting. Everyone was like, don't, don't touch it, don't touch it, don't touch it. I was like, I'm, that's it. And they were like, no, yeah, just leave it there. And then they surrounded it, put all the tape and all, and the fellow came, and they pulled it out, and they took the pictures, and then you could see all that face had changed, and then they were all like, oh, my God, we've... We have to go on and everyone's ringing everybody and they're all ringing the police stations and ringing, I don't know who they're ringing. And they're like, we have it, we have to go on. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 